Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follier Different. And on this episode, we continue our run of legendary authors. Seven-time New York Times bestselling author, seven-time Bruce Feiler is here. Now, if you're a first-time listener, there's a couple things you should know. Uh, First of all, our regular listeners have made us an award-winning, chart-topping dialogue podcast, and we're forever grateful. But what a dialogue podcast means is uh, what you're about to hear is not what you're used to hearing. It's a real conversation, not a typical interview. Uh, As you probably know, interviews are highly produced, edited down to sound bites or, God forbid, value bombs and sliced and diced and served up to you in exactly the narrative that the producers of that show, in quotes, put together. We're the opposite of all that. The experience we hope you have is an eavesdropping experience. And because we're a real dialogue podcast, you will never hear an ad read in the middle of our guest conversations. Because I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm in the middle of a great conversation in a podcast and I'm I'm, uh, ensconced in it, I don't want to hear about ZipRecruiter or whoever. God bless ZipRecruiter. So you're never going to hear that. And the conversation you're about to hear with Bruce is frankly, uh, a great example of why we picked the dialogue niche. You see, Bruce is clearly a legendary thinker and writer. And unlike in a normal interview, we go deep. He's got a monster new book out called Life is in the Transitions. And it's one of the seminal books of this year. I mentioned he's got seven other books. One of his other books is called Council of Dads. And that was made into an NBC show. His work has literally been everywhere, including Good Morning America, The Today Show, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and a bunch of other places. On this episode, we have a very big conversation about what Bruce calls life quakes. Both voluntary life quakes, that is to say when you and I decide to take a new job or get married or move to a new place or something along those lines, and involuntary uh, life quakes. For example, the death of a loved one, the loss of a job, the divorce, etc. And Bruce actually has some fascinating real research on what percentage of these quakes are voluntary and involuntary in our lives and how many we're likely to have and most powerfully, how we might navigate these uh, radical changes, these quakes, and turn them into what Bruce calls life transitions. We also dig deep into why the linear sort of up and to the right hero narrative story that we all get told about life is actually bullshit. And we get into C-19 and why it is actually what Bruce calls a collective involuntary life quake that because of the size and scope of COVID, the entire world is experiencing at the same time. And we dig into much, much more. And I'll tell you, This is a big conversation, so put on your big girl and your big boy pants. We are brought to you by our good friends at NetSuite. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud ERP system. And if you ever wanted to be on top of things, now's the time. Go visit netsuite.com slash different today. That's netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are having their annual conference in October for America, October 20th and 21st, and for Europe and Asia, the 20th. 21st and 22nd. Um, so check out conf, C-O-N-F dot Splunk dot com today. 
And um, you might recall a little while back on episode 186, we had on Naveen Chada, who's the leader of Mayfield, one of the top venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. And after he was on, uh, we had some further conversations, myself, Naveen, and his team. And I'm proud to announce that we are actually collaborating on a new podcast series that I'm super proud of called Conscious VC. And we have some legendary guests, people like Radical Candor author uh, Kim Scott, uh, education pioneer and founder of the Khan Academy, Sal Khan, and, and many others. Our goal is to have real conversations that explore how to build businesses that shape the future while making a giant difference at the same time. So check out Conscious VC on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get legendary podcasts. Now, hey ho, let's go. I just want you to know, uh, thank you for your work. It's nice of you to say. I get a sense of who you are through your work, uh, a big sense of who you are, and it's very, very clear that you have a very big commitment and that you're up to something. And it might be for, not for some people and more for others and, and so forth and so on, but it's very clear the place that you're coming from, and I want you to know I appreciate it. I appreciate you saying that. Now, tell me about a life quake, Bruce. <laughs> so a life quake <laughs> is... A moment of big wrenching change. And I'm chuckling, and I think you're chuckling for the same reason, because I feel like I have been kind of wandering around my home for the last five years while I've been talking to people about these life quakes and the life transitions that grow out of them, thinking we should be talking about what happens when you know when, when life takes you unexpectedly we should be talking about these huge wrenching changes we should be talking about life transitions why is nobody doing that and then lo and behold <laughs> this book arrives at this moment when the entire planet is going through a life quake uh, at the same time but to to go back a little you know and to address kind of the spirit of your question or what i'm hearing you say is that I got interested in these periods because I went through a life quake. Um, you know, the way I think about my life now is I had what I would now call, in the way I've come to think about this, a linear life. Okay, I grew up in, in Georgia. I left and went to college in the Northeast. I moved to Japan. I started writing letters home. Like, you're just not going to believe what happened to me. And when I got back home, six months later, everyone said, I loved your letters. I was like, great have we met? And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and they went viral kind of in a 1980 sense of the word. And I thought, well, you know, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone would have written a book. So I sold my first book 31 years ago and this month actually. And I think what that meant for me. Congratulations. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually feeling nostalgic. I think actually the pandemic has made us all nostalgic in a certain way uh, because we've lost something and there's. Isn't that amazing? That moment that a real legit publisher says to you, I'm going to buy your book. I'm going to pay you money to write this thing that you've been doing for so long anyway, and that you're, you, you would do for free. And I know that, and you know that, but I'm going to pay you to do it. Isn't that an incredible day? The best description I ever heard about this is from a kind of a lifelong hero of mine, Pat Conroy. So I, I grew up 
in Savannah part of the time, but part of the time on Tybee Island, Georgia, which is a small island off the coast of Savannah. And Pat grew up not far from there. And right after graduating from college, he went to teach high school in this small island called Defusky, where they the people spoke Gullah. They had never really had a teacher. And he wrote a book about this that later became the movie Conrack starring John Voight, but the book was called Water is Wide. His agent called mm, and said, right. Pat, I got some good news for you. $10,000. And Pat said, that's all I have to pay? So that right. is... That that to me has always captured the story. In fact, you know, I think I, I I feel like I owe a lot of my life to Pat because though I didn't meet him until many years later in my life, um, he's kind of one of those people that taught me that you could be from where I am from and still write something that people not from there would care about. But for me, what that moment also represented was I discovered very early on, like I was interested in doing this. I had some aptitude at it, but it obviously was not a very good way to make your living. But that's what I wanted to do. And I did it in my 20s. I wrote books about Japan and country music. I spent a year as a circus clown. Then in my 30s, I I went back and forth to the Middle I East. I love that you spent a I love that you're this, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it just, you're this guy who writes about God and all yeah. this deep, meaningful stuff. And you're a circus clown and country music and Garth Brooks. And like, you're as an eclectic as a... <laughs> as a human being as there probably can be this um this is this is really who i am right you know and i and i in fact when i was in the circus for a year two shows a day three shows on saturday every day from march to december without a day off right and this i you know i used to have i used to have all these like bum bum like almost like clown lines you know like and when you and when you hang by your hair you can't have a bad hair day you know i, mean, I, I used to have all i used to if you don't get me talking if you you know you said before we got on this conversation that it could go on as long as you want if you start getting me telling circus stories we're really going to be here for uh, a long I time i care less and i will chase you down uh, any zebra hole that you want to go down <laughs> So I grew up in Georgia and my dad used to say like, you know, you want to be, you, you want to succeed in the world. You got to be able to talk to everybody at William's seafood restaurant, which is the seafood restaurant on this Creek in Georgia where like, you know, the shrimpers would go there and the, you know, and the white collar people would go there. And that was a thing. Like you should be able to talk to everybody. So that has always been kind of a mind, kind of a mind, I don't know, key thing for me, which is to go Set, places, yeah. enter worlds, kind of become a part of them and then leave and explain them to people who, who were interested but can't be there. Like I was backstage at the Grand Ole Opry with Garth Brooks, right? I was later on top of Mount Sinai because you mentioned the God thing. I started writing these books about the Bible where I went back and forth to the Middle East. And the kind of the original idea was I wanted to read the Bible. I put it by my bed. I, I, I didn't find a way in. Then I went to see a friend in Jerusalem, and my friend said, over here is this controversial neighborhood, and over there is the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I was like, oh, these are real places. Like, here's an idea. Like, what if I travel along the route and read the Bible along the way? Because it was what I used, what I frankly thought, and I never said publicly because I was too embarrassed to say it, was what if I join the Bible as if it were the circus, right? And become a part of it and talk to everybody along the way because that's what I like to do. You're going to join the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, I, was, I joined the Bible. I didn't just walk the Bible. I joined the Bible, right? So, and I did this, and that book, Walking the Bible, became a thing. Spent a year and a half on the bestseller list, and then I made a documentary about it. And this is then what I did through my 30s. I went back and forth. I wrote a book about Abraham after 9-11 and sort of got involved in interfaith conversation. 
and I wrote a bunch of books on this and made a bunch of television. I got married. I had children. And then, and that was the linear life, right? That was the fantasy. And it was great, life. man, right? Was you great. were yep. up there. You up were the man. That. I mean, you had this incredibly fascinating, stimulating life. And I'm sure you have a wonderful family and you, you, you won, right? I won. I had the ascending, what I now think of as the ascending life. That line, there was no stock market line. It was going up, right? It was flat. And then a hockey stick to, to speak entrepreneurship to you since that's pillow talk in my family because my wife works with entrepreneurs like you. So I'm just going to drop in a bunch of lingo, make, make you feel comfortable. <laughs> Excellent. So, so I've got it sitting around. I can't do anything with it. So I might as well share it with you. Throw it down anytime. And then... I hit an inflection point, right? So then I just got walloped, right? Then came the big life quake for me. So first, I, as you know, I got cancer. I was a 43-year-old new dad. And this was the first kind of nonlinear event in my life. In fact, so nonlinear that I had an adult onset pediatric cancer. I love that. You got a cancer that only kids get, right? Pretty much? 800 people a year get it. 85% are under 21. So well, 100 adults get this disease. And I was one of the 100. Who you got should it. have bought a lottery ticket the day you got diagnosed. <laughs> and so I, that was the year of the recession. And then my family that was in the real estate business in Georgia almost got wiped out. So I almost went bankrupt, right? And then the, the kind of the ultimate one is that my dad the one who could talk to anybody, one of those people who could talk to a tree, right? You know, sort of the person, I can't even do this to this day. I like talking to people, but like he would go on an airplane and like talk to the next person, you know, for the entire ride. My dad, he was never depressed a minute in his life. He gets Parkinson's, Parkinson's affects your movement, but also your mood. And he gets terribly depressed. And as you know, because my book opens this way, he tries to kill himself six times in 12 weeks. So this is a, a life quake, as I think of it now. This is life coming at you from all ways. This is like, you don't know what to do. Like, I like difficult conversations. The conversations we were having that fall were unhavable. They just were unhavable. We didn't have a language for them. We had no way to deal with them. But I'm the story guy, right? And I'm the meaning guy. I like running into the fire. Like, I like difficulty and pain, and so one morning, Monday morning, I'm like, here's an idea. I'm going to send my dad a question. Tell me about the toys that you played with when you were the, a kid. And my dad, mind you, can't even move his fingers at this point. But he thinks about the question all week. He dictates his answer to the phone. And it was the first time in a really long time that he had some like sense of life to him. I'm going to send him another one. Tell me about the, you know, the house you grew up in. And this goes on for what becomes years. How'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? Until this man who had never written anything longer than a memo backs into writing an autobiography. And I was like, okay, I have just stumbled onto something like the power of storytelling. I got to know what's going on here. And that kind of then catapults me into this new uh, venture that I set off on. How many, how many pages is his memoir at this stage of the game? It's 52,000 words. 52,000 words. <laughs> which, you know, it, it, if you put it in a book form... How many words is your new book, Life Transition? So Life is in the Transition. Uh, Walking the Bible was 110. Abraham was about, you know, 52. Uh, Life is in the Transitions is 92. So from a word point of view, if you put it in a book, it'd probably be 225 pages. But we, yeah. but we also got a bunch of pictures because he was a lifelong photographer. And so right. now, actually, that we're kind of at the end of it, 
and we're yeah. kind of putting it together. I'm, I almost have like these two books and I'm actually thinking now we're going to downplay mm-hmm. the photos. Could you make a coffee table book? Well, we may, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do because I actually think as a reading experience, it's very powerful. And so I actually want you to sit down, want people to sit down and, and read it. It was just amazing. And then it turns out, this is what's interesting. It turns out there's an entire field called narrative gerontology of the power of having older people tell their story. There's a whole field that's developing at this time called narrative adolescence, right? It's adolescence, the first time that you begin to tell your story. And I learned all of this because I had stumbled at the time I was writing this column in the New York Times. I wrote this book called The Secrets of Happy Families, as you know, and the most interesting idea in that was the power of family history. The children who know more about their family history, this is research done by two uh, psychologists at Emory. Children, who, you know, I, they asked them these 21 questions. Do you know where your grandparents were born? Do you know an aunt or an uncle had an illness that they overcame? Do you know what was happening when your parents met or you, you were born? And the children who could answer these questions the most, who had the, the kind of greater knowledge about their family history, it was the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. It allowed them to navigate what this researcher, Marshall Duke at Emory, told me was an oscillating family narrative, right? So back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Not the ascending narrative where you work hard and you have a lot, the life that I thought that I had, <laughs> not the descending narrative, which we had a lot and along comes a you know a storm, a recession, a pandemic, and we lost it all, an oscillating narrative with ups and downs. And the kids who understand this. And so I, the way I live my life, back, back to me in Japan or me in Jerusalem, I thought this is an interesting experience. I have to write about it. But unlike the way I live my life, not to tell you the full story, I got totally stuck. Like, I, is this the story of storytelling? Is it my dad's story? Is it my story? I didn't know. So I actually put you it were, down. You're exploring a new idea and you didn't know what that idea was. And that a was a direction. unfamiliar thing to me. Yes. That, then that was unfamiliar. You sort of, uh, you, you, you knew it was down there, but you didn't know what it was. <laughs> Remember that scene in uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind where Richard Dreyfus is in, in the front of the house and he's building this big m- mud pile of something and he's doing it. I forget how long he's doing it, but he doesn't, he doesn't know what it is. Do you remember this? I do not, but I'm listening. <laughs> oh, anyway. And they would ask him like, what are you building? He's like, I don't know. Why are you doing it? I don't know. I just have to do this. <laughs> it's a- so I got stuck and I was, I stopped building for a while. And then the following thing happened to me. I threw out my back. So I was flat on my back for three months, not wanting to have any more surgery. Remember, because I'd had a 17-hour surgery to remove my femur, replace it with titanium, take my fibula from my calf and relocate it to my thigh where it now lives and remove half my quadricep. So I already have a lots of lower body issues. And like, I'm not going to have any more surgery anywhere near there. So I'm like, I'm going to wait out this back. And, and um, in the middle of that, I have my 30th college reunion. So, and I am asked, I've been asked to moderate a panel of prominent classmates. And I, I wanted to drive, but I couldn't drive. And so I have a classmate around the corner and I live in Brooklyn. So we're going, we're going to New Haven, Connecticut. And I tell my friend, Hey, will you drive? We'll catch up. He doesn't talk to me the entire two hour drive because He's on, he, he gets on my car speakerphone and he's going back and forth. He's, he's a real estate developer. He's closing a big deal from, he's <laughs> being on top of the world 
to literally breaking down in my car and crying because the previous day his partner had a nine-month-old. The nine-month-old went down for a nap and the nine-month-old never woke up. Mm-hmm. So I get to I get to the campus of uh, Yale. I'm in a room in front of 250 people. I have all these prominent classmates next to me. And what do you do when you're moderating a panel? People send their resumes. Nothing is more orderly than a resume and nothing is more impressive than a resume. And I have no appetite for it because I've just spent this wrenching morning watching someone succeed and suffer at the same time. So I ripped the resumes in half and I'm like, I don't want to hear about your successes. Losers don't come to their college reunion. Tell them to your mother. I want to hear about your struggles. Like what keeps you awake at night? What has been difficult between then and now? And that night we're in one of those reunion tents, right? There's like a bar on one side and a barbecue on the, on the other. I'm from Georgia. I don't like barbecue with a B and a Q. Like I like it spelled <laughs> out. And it takes me, I have a cane because of my back, which I haven't had since I was on crutches for two years. And it takes me two hours to walk from one end to the other because everybody comes up and has a story. My wife right. went into the headache. My wife had a headache when the hospital died the next day. My boss stole a bunch of money from me. My daughter tried to take her own life. My brother just got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And what everybody was saying was some version of this. The life I'm living is not the life I'm, I expected to be living. Like I'm living life out of order. And it was that word, Chris, I have to say, it was that word, order, that kind of just like reverberated. Like, what do you mean order? What do you mean what you expected? And I called my wife. And this was my Richard Dreyfus moment. And I said, something's going on out here. No one knows how to tell their life story. I've got to figure out how to help. And I have no idea what's going to happen next. Thank you. That's awesome. The other thing that I, I don't know quite how to say this, but sort of synthesize from your work. And I'll put it in the terms that I experience it, which is probably not what it is for you because I'm a I'm a fighter and an old punk rocker and a boxer and a so I you know I got a lot of anger is my happy place, <laughs> but it almost seems like to me that there's one of the things that you one of the machines that you are raging against is this bullshit narrative that we get taught to your to your exact point I think of the story I want to test this out with you that there's this linear up and to the right curve. And when you go to, you know, the the commencement speaker comes up and tells you all the stupid shit about follow your passion, worst advice ever, you know, and that and they tell their life story and it it just sounds like this up and to the right thing. All that is complete horseshit. And it seems like that 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 story that we get told and they lived happily ever after after this sort of mostly linear with a bump along the way to make it interesting (laughs) and and we're done one bump and only one bump yeah right it's like oh you know the hero does a thing or somebody you know and he has to save the maiden or whatever it is right that that sort of bullshit narrative of of life being that way is sort of a a machine that you're raging against (laughs) is that am am i in the zone here bruce so here's here's how i ended up in that zone And by the way, I use the word bullshit a lot, actually, about this narrative. But here's what happened. So after this experience, I get back, I go back in my bed (laughs) because my back is still bad. And I pull off. It's one of those moments, you know, you, you, you know, that fantasy thing that we all hear that you pull a book off a shelf. Yeah. And the shelf moves. 
And it turns out there's a secret hidden chamber back there. This right. is what I feel like happened to me. It turns out, I, I think Dan Brown has one of these actually in his, in his castle in, in, in France. Um, so what happens is I pull off the shelf passages. Mm. The book that is single-handedly most responsible for that narrative. And then what I realize is that there's this whole room that I didn't know about, which has created what you now have referred to, and I referred to for years, as this bullshit narrative. But let me work my way to passages, because here's what I found in the room. And what I found in the room is the following. Every culture has a way of looking at the world and how the culture explains the world explains how the culture explains the shape of the human life. Okay. So this is the big moment. And I'm like, wait, why didn't anybody ever invite me into this room? So here's what I mean. In the ancient world, back to the Bible, back to the 10 years I spent writing, going back and forth to the Middle East and spending a lot of time in the ancient world. They don't have linear time. They don't have watches. So their way, they understand the world as a agricultural cyclical cycle. <laughs> and this is how they think the world works, right? To every season, turn, turn, turn. Like there is no sense of progress because there's no sense of linear time. It's actually the Bible in the West that introduces the idea of linear time. Actually, that's one of the big breakthroughs of the Bible that people don't talk about, is that, that the, the history is now moving forward, okay? And, and, then, and of so, course, I hate to interrupt you, but linear time is purely an interpretation. Correct. And in fact, over time, even in the people who understand time as linear, they understand the shape of that linearity differently. So in the Middle Ages, they say life is a staircase up to middle age and then a staircase down. And what happens is I discover, and I actually have it now in Life is in the Transitions, these images of life peaks at middle age and then it's straight down there. So what does that mean? That's no new love at 40. That's no starting a podcast at 50. That's no retiring and moving to another place and opening up a B and b you know, in your home. That's no, that, that's no running away and being in the circus for a while. <laughs> that's no running away and being in the circus. That's no losing a, that's no getting a pediatric cancer at 43. That's no losing your dad when you were three. That means every, every, and life, it sure is no coronavirus and massive recession and riots and racial injustice and, and on and on. It's its own particular brand of bullshit, but that's not the bullshit that we were told. So this is how they see it in the middle ages. And then what happens is, about 150 years ago, around the time of the birth of science, the linear narrative takes hold. So if you look at the first 100 years of psychology, Freud says we have these psychosexual stages of development. Okay, Erickson says the eight stages of moral development. Okay, the five stages of grief, the hero's journey. These are all Hierarchy linear contracts. Why? 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 We stack things on top of other things. This is, this is me raging against the machine because the conveyor belt, because the way we understood the world was the industrial model of life. In fact, Erickson, who had the eight state and Erickson, who had an incredibly interesting life because he was, you know, basically a closeted Jew in Europe who was basically called a goy and also called Jewish. Then he escapes to America. He says, I 
built my model of moral development, which says a series of stages and challenges you had to overcome because it was like the industrial model. That's how we understood the world. And this all reaches its peak with passages in the 70s. So with the story of passages, since we're, since we're going to geek out on this story and the time and really I try to understand where the bullshit came from, to use your term, which I'm now embracing, and which I used at the time, which I'll explain in a second. You can swear as much as you like around me. <laughs> no, I, what, what ha- it makes me angry is the reason that I swear, because it's so corrosive. I understand. Language creates thinking. Yes. See, a lot of people think that uh, language is expressing thinking, which, of course, it's both. But people seem to miss, I don't know, you'll tell me, you're much more thoughtful and learned on this than I am, but... I'm a student of languaging, the way we use language, because a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in, th- in thinking, which often will lead to a demarcation point in actions, results, and outcomes. And so the way we express something changes our relationship to it. So I'm about to tell you the story that it illustrates that more than any single story, which is the story of a phrase. And the phrase is the midlife crisis. And the, and the story that relates to the way you just said it is, this is the phrase that locked us in to the bullshit narrative. The first person who came up with that phrase was a, a Canadian anthropologist named Elliot Jacques. And he first said it in Can't London. Trust those a, Canadians, Bruce. And they laugh at him. So that they, he was like laughed out of town in London. And then he publishes a piece in 1963 about the midlife crisis. He doesn't talk to anybody. He reads 300 biographies of famous men and concludes that they all have a midlife crisis. And he says in the paper, I couldn't talk to women because women have menopause and it like throws up the whole story. It like it messes it up. Well, if menopause messes it up and half the people on the planet are women, like this is an example that this is not a good idea. <laughs> that, But he didn't care because he was talking about biographies of famous men, okay? As if that's a model of anything. Okay, and two, <laughs> and two researchers, a guy named Dan Levinson at Yale and Roger Gould at UCLA, they they pick this idea up and they so Levinson talks to forty people, all men. Actually, he also went to also was teaching at Yale at Yale. Forty people in New Haven, Connecticut, as if this is representative of anything, and starts writing about the the seasons of a man's life. And Roger Gould at UCLA, he's writing. He sent out a questionnaire to people. Gail Sheehy was a reporter at New York Magazine and incredibly good at naming things. She gets a hold of this research. She writes a piece about it in New York Magazine. She doesn't credit Roger Gould, by the way, just for the record. This is such a juicy story. (laughs) He sues her for malpractice and wins. And she has no money, so she gives him 10% of the royalties of the book that she writes about. The, The book is called Passages. The Library of Congress listed it as one of the 10 most influential books of the 20th century. It sells 20 million copies. He's got a 10% share of it. I mean, like he totally, he totally wins. The, the book Passages, which comes out in 1976, says everyone does the same thing in their 20s. Everyone does the same thing in their 30s. Everyone has a midlife crisis at 39 and a half. It must start at 39 and a half. It will end at 44. The book beca- and the subtitle of the book is The Predictable Crises of Adult Life. And this story shaped it. So even when I go off and I set out on this journey, I just told you Roger Gould talked to 40 people. I talked to 225 people. I collected entire life stories of them. 
all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states. I have 6,000 pages of transcripts, which I then spend a year with 12 people reading through coding, trying to find themes and ideas. People would say, oh, I had my first midlife crisis at 17, or I had my first midlife crisis, my, my last one at 62. Just the way they talked about it indicated that this was just wrong. And in fact, and in homage to you, I said at the beginning of every conversation, we're going to talk about this because that story is bullshit. And I got to figure out what is going on now. How is it that we see the world and how do we need to update the way we look at our life? And that w became, I didn't go seeking this. I just went seeking how do people tell their stories. And this is what I uh, uncovered, which is that the linear life is dead. It's been replaced by the nonlinear life and the nonlinear life involves many more life transitions. And that becomes the big idea that emerges from this experience. And then the other thing, so thank you for that. I think it, it, it's very important and you do a masterful job of helping us understand how I, an idea, which is really just what midlife crisis is. Somebody had an idea and they named it as such, becomes a truth. Yes. It's an insight that becomes, it becomes science. It might be an interesting insight. It might be a topic worth discussing, but it's not science. It's not gravity. Like I, if I, 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 I can't jump my ass to the moon. Something's stopping me, right? That's different than that. It's, in, it's an interpretation, right? It's a discussion it, and it should have been a dialogue, but it became an is. That's so well said. It absolutely became an is. And then what happened is if you go back and you use the frame that I was using at the outset of this part of our conversation, Fundamentally, how we look at the world affects how we look at our lives. And in the 70s, we looked at life as an industrial model with these lines and conveyor belts and scientific proofs. But we've now changed the way we look at the world. So now we understand that there's chaos theory, that there's complexity, that there's the internet, there's the kind of web. There's, there's chance, there's happenstance, there's pandemics, there's a lot of things. And so what's kind of what became my mission was to say, okay, well, we've changed how we understood the world. Now, how do we apply that to how we understand our lives? And so then what I then did is with all of this data, what I found is that the pace of change is quickening so that my data show we have one disruptor, as I call it, we have three dozen in the course of our lives. That's one so every 12 to 18 36, months. is that right? Yeah, 36. And these, I use the word disruptor on purpose because most of the people who talk about this, even the academics, they use stressor, they use crisis, they use things which end up being very, which by definition are very negative. But I'm the parent of identical girls. Like that was a massive change. It was a joyful change, but everything changed around it. And that's, so we have to use a different set of words. So disruptor and so I have this deck of disruptors. The, these these could be as small as an accident, you know, having new responsibilities at work, or as big as changing your belief system, or uh, you know, changing your job. And there are people who change their sexes, or people who change their religions, or extraordinary. It's an astounding period of change. Yeah. And the thing that I love, and it's so, it's so simple, and of course, once you say it, it's a duh. But there are those that we choose those massive changes or transitions yeah. that we choose. I choose a career path. I choose an education. Uh, I choose a, a, a life partner, a spouse. Uh, I choose a profession. I choose to change this. I choose to move to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all part of 
the way I would think about it is a proactive life design. And if you look at a lot of that self-help and all that stuff, it's all centered around how do I come up with a uh, life design that feels authentic or real or in, t- in touch with myself that'll f- fulfill me in some way. And then how do I go execute that life design? And rarely is there a discussion, and uh, this is the distinction that I love that you make, there those things are great. Those things are important. Um, they're very powerful. They have characteristics and qualities to them. And then sometimes your brother gets murdered. And then what really happens is that sometimes um, is they tend to clump together. Actually, that's something that I don't, I don't even think is in the in the social science research. What happens when they pile up? And I love that you call them a, a like a car pile up. Yeah, pile up. I've right. had a car pile up in the last year, and that's exactly what it is. It's very hard. It, that was a hard name to come up with to kind of because no one's really talked about it a lot. Well, let me let me just take a step back so that yeah. so that we don't lose people. So we have these things I call disruptors that we have. There's no people. It's just you and me. <laughs> So let me take a step back so that I make sure I'm following this, okay? Because we're jumping all around, okay? <laughs> Maybe you're following this, but I'm not. In the, any event that anyone's tapped into this kind of mind, that they could have a better sense. Okay, so we have these disruptors. They come at us all the time. And most of them, I'm kind of relieved to discover, because I'm telling the story of this, I guess, is I'm kind of relieved to discover we get through most of these okay. We're actually pretty good at change, considering it's a relatively new phenomenon. I mean, if you think about 100 years ago, most people lived where their parents you know, wanted them to live, believed where their parents wanted them to believe, you know, married who their parents wanted them to marry, did what their parents wanted them to do. This change is very, it's relatively new, and it's certainly new for uh for for women who didn't have anywhere near as much freedom as even men had, but men didn't have as much freedom 100 years ago. So, but one in 10 of these is this massive change. And yes, I call this a life quake because it's kind of higher on the Richter scale of consequences and it has aftershocks that last for years. And so as you jumped on, the instinct is to think of these as negative. But in fact, a lot of them are positive. Or actually, it depends on who you are, what your instinct is. So it turns out 53% are involuntary, okay? So involuntary, an involuntary life quake is your spouse cheats on you, you lose your job, a natural disaster hits, uh, something of that nature. California's on fire. Uh, That's, yeah, we can get into that in a second because that's a collective life quake. But yeah, so that's an involuntary one. Which is another very powerful distinction you bring in, but Yes, keep going. Yeah, we're gonna we're working our way there. And then the forty seven percent are voluntary, right? So that is, you change your religion, you choose to leave a job, you cheat on your spouse, you know, whatever it might be. And so what's interesting is, the, the, I think you know, because we're talking about kind of the behind the scenes here. I was born in nineteen sixty four. Okay, so that's nominally the last year of the baby boom, even though that's absurdly twenty years after the war. Technically, I'm a baby boomer. I have all these millennial coders in my office, right? Graduate students, undergraduates, poets, novelists, or whatever. And I look at the, I look at this and think, forty-seven percent of our life quakes are voluntary. Like, you know, you know, fucking a man. Like, we're getting it. We are embracing the nonlinear life. Like, we are seeking change. We know that we can write the story of our lives. And these millennials are looking at, because I've had cancer and almost went bankrupt and my dad tried, you know, I'm thinking like, oh, it's all, you know, it's, it's coming at me involuntarily and 47% are voluntary. The millennials are like, whoa, 
53% are involuntary. You mean I can't control my life? Like all of the life design planning I'm doing um, is not going to work out. And so I think, I don't know. So which of those numbers is more surprising to you? I'm trying to think from the question, like, are, are you more of a fatalist or more of a, you can control your lifer? I'm way more of a, I can control my lifer and right. having uh, suffered a massive countrywide car pile up in my life in the last 12 months. It's not something I'm used to at all. Right. So, but to answer your question, I'm actually surprised 47% are voluntary. Mm-hmm. It strikes me in my observation that this is probably going to sound unfair, but I'm just going to say it the way it is in my head and we can call me an asshole afterwards. That no, During, if we're going to call you an asshole during, if, <laughs> we're not going to save it. <laughs> Excellent. Get in line, motherfuckers. Um, uh, that a lot of us get sold a narrative, get stuck in a rut, what, however you want to describe it. But if you look at the average five-year-old and you describe who they are, what they're about, how engaged they are, how alive they are, et cetera. Then you take the average 75-year-old and you describe what they're like and how they are and how engaged they are and so forth. In most cases, you go, hey, what the fuck happened? How did life take this new thing that was excited and alive and vibrant and full of dreams and ideas and creativity and whatever and turn them into this pessimistic, angry, pissed off, whatever, right? So it always breaks my heart when I see people get stuck and they talk about life like it's the weather. And I I hate it in our language. One Mm. that always drives me nuts, Bruce, is how's life treating you? Interesting. Not too bad, Mm. right? As though life is like, well, there's the weather forecast today in Santa Cruz and that's how the weather's going to be. Well, there's a component of life that's like that. You can't make it not true. When your brother dies, mm-hmm. you can't make it not true when you lose a parent. You can't make it not true when you go through a divorce. These things happen, right? But much of much of our life we can generate. I, I'm a person who deeply believes that, and I would offer up as evidence my own life. You're talking to a, a, a failed high school dropout paper boy, and I did slightly better than that <laughs> over time. So, so... You know, for some of us, to your to your wife's point, working on Endeavor, um, entrepreneurship is a way up, and that's great. Hey, congratulations if you go to Stanford and you write an algorithm and you create Google. God bless you. Uh, but for many of us, entrepreneurship is a way out, and that's what it was for me. And whether it's entrepreneurship or any other proactive, creative endeavor to move yourself on the path that you want to be moving on. We have the ability to create our life. I think it's a radical idea, but I think it is absolutely the case. And so I'm 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 happy that the number is 47 because I would have expected it to maybe even be half that number. So let me respond to what you just said in a couple of ways. And let me go back and talk about 100 years ago, back to what I was saying before, where our sources of meaning 100, 100 years ago were by and large given to us. Mm-hmm. I have these five storylines, as you know, in my book, love, work, body, beliefs, and identity. And if you break them down, you know, your family was largely chosen by a whole series of circumstances. Your beliefs were given to you by what your parents believed. You had fewer options for what you could do, you know, in your workplace. And, and your religion was essentially, you know, something that was a, a fixed thing. So a hundred years later, 
we have astonishing choice in how we navigate those. You know, even as you said, the idea that you can now change your bodies from the the uh, gender you were assigned at your birth to the gender um, that you that you mo- more closely identify with, and this is an a, astonishing amount of change in a very 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 rapid historical amount of time. When you spend as much time as I do in the ancient world, and you think that this has all happened in a hundred years, that's an incredible pace of change. And so, yes, I do think that more people. When you stop and think about it, how many, half of Americans change faith in the course of their lives. That's not a number that most people understand. Four in 10 of us are in an interfaith marriage. That was something that was unthinkable even 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And then when you add it was illegal 50 years ago to be in an interracial marriage in this, in, in this, in this country. So there is an incredible amount of change and people do actually embrace that. But they also have at the same time these things that these changes that they can the the voluntary life quakes are happening alongside the involuntary ones and then that layers in where the, the point that you alluded to before about where we are now because the other metric that i divided these on is personal and collective and so pers- a personal life quake is something that happens to you right? You're going through a divorce, you're changing your job, you're changing your sexual identity, you're changing, you know, you've, you've become, you know, you've come into money or lost a lot of money or whatever it might be. And a collective is one that you're doing with other people. And the small, I actually thought, again, since I'm kind of telling the story of this experience, I thought personal, excuse me, voluntary, involuntary, dead on. The fact that it's 5347 tells me I'm onto something. Like we're kind of half and half. The other one, but like 80% of them or 82% or whatever the number one, I may have my book in front of me, but I could look it up, mostly personal. And the smallest category was collective involuntary. So a collective involuntary life quake is a recession. It's a natural disaster. 9-11 comes up a lot. Um, and there's a line that speaking as a kind of a writer, storyteller here, this kind of a th- what I would think of as a throwaway line in my book that – I say, oh, if I had done this 100 years ago, two world wars and a recession, a Great Depression, there would have been many more. And boy, this is kind of a selfish time that we're in, isn't it? And then I just move on. I like make the point, throw it out there. I don't think that much about it. And I like move on in the story that I'm telling. And then, lo and behold, this book arrives at the exact moment that we're all in a collective involuntary life quake. But let's go one level deeper, okay? So the pandemic is the first collective involuntary life quake in a century that the entire planet is going through at the same time. But you said pileup. So let me just describe what a pileup is. A pileup is they tend to clump, right? So just when you, you know, lose your job, um, your, you know, your daughter is found to have an anxiety disorder. Just when you're going to move, your, you know, your mother-in-law has a heart attack and you get fired from your job. So they tend to clump. I call this a pileup, like the old black and white movies with one car and a boom, 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 all the other cars. There's two car pileups, three car pileups, five car pileups. So some of these are just coincidence. Back to the experience you were saying, some it just happen this way. But more of them are not. And I came to believe that what happens is when you go through a life quake, it kind of weakens your body's immune system. And so that something that could be otherwise like a, just an everyday disruptor that you get through pretty easily actually rises to the level of being a, um, a life quake. And I think the best example of that 
to go back to the news is the pandemic hits, what, February, March is when the, the shutdowns start. And then you have these killings that have been regular occurrences in American history for, for decades, if not centuries, right? You have Amon Arbery in Georgia, you have Breonna Taylor, that becomes popular. And then you have George Floyd. Why George Floyd? Why did George Floyd trigger this countrywide protest movement and this reckoning with a 400-year-old problem in American history? I believe it because of the pileup, because the country is in the pandemic and our immune system is weakened, and we're already in a place of kind of heightened sensitivity to change, that this one becomes the one, this becomes the spark that sets the flame. So what is the protest movement? It's a collective voluntary life break. It's something that we all choose to do together. So it's a voluntary response in some ways to COVID and the recession and everything around COVID. Bingo. And also the political situation, because let's be honest, throw into that essentially the political instability, to be generous, that we're in right now. That's where we are right now, is in this merging. But here, I think, is the important distinction and the important thing that I learned that it's interesting. Like, I keep getting asked you know, this book comes out in July, it like, boom, just explodes in the fantasy that all writers have, right? You know, it's top 10 New York Times bestseller, it's gone through, you know, whatever, eight printings in six weeks. And I keep Way being to go, asked, Bruce. Thank you. I keep being Way asked. Way to go, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 you know, gratifying, but it's also like I'm trying to understand. No, but you're the, it, look, I know this might sound corny or whatever. I don't give a shit. You did the work and a whole set of things happen. And this is a building on a multiple decade career of work. And you find yourself as the man in this moment or one of them. I mean, there there are many, there are many of us stepping up and there there are many people whose, whose backgrounds are somehow powerfully tuned to this moment, but that's what happened. And, and uh, as a result, you're able to give us a big gift. And I'm I'm stoked for your success. And I think the world needs to hear about this work. Well, I, I appreciate that. That's very nice of you to say. Um, I'm resistant to the idea. People say, oh, you deserve it because I don't think anyone deserves anything. So I don't believe that it that I deserve it. But it has happened. And I well, have for been, fuck's sakes, would you at least enjoy it for me? Yes, I'm, trying, <laughs> um, I'm what's in, what's enjoyable is that it's resonating, but it's resonating because the pain that I went through that led me to do this, to talking to people about their own pain, turns out to be resonating with people who are in pain. So I don't want to be celebrating the fact that people are in pain, but I'm very happy that when people feel stuck, like they don't know what to do, like I wrote about this in New York Times, like feeling stuck, like here are five things you can do. So I do feel like I know how to get yourself unstuck. That like, And that's the point I'm about to make here in this conversation. Yeah, so, and, is- and maybe if we could focus it, I'm very curious... We are having this this involuntary life quake. Yep. And it is, to your point, it's personal and collective at the same time. And it's the first collective one of, the, of, of anywhere near this scale. It's the first time in any of our lives. Right? Yes. 100%. And so if I'm somebody who's sitting here going, we're, I don't know, plus or minus six months, seven months into this thing, whatever, however long the fuck it's been going on. And this collective life quake is really, I'm, I'm having a tough time with this collective life quake. What do people in that boat need to hear? What you need to hear is that the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary. But the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. That's 
the key moment. And that's the moment that if if I could do it again, I would make it a bigger part of my book. Could you just say that again, please, Bruce? The life quake could be voluntary or involuntary. Again, a voluntary one could be you're choosing to change your job. You're choosing to move. Remember in my book, 61% of the people move in the course of a life transition. And I don't know about you, but 61% of the conversations I'm in, people are talking about moving. I don't so, know. I hear New Zealand's really nice. <laughs> the, if they could let you in, you know, there's no cases. So they don't want, they, 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 they don't want your uh, infected, um, you know, infected luggage coming in there, baggage coming <laughs> into there. Um, uh, I centered myself on what I was going to say. The, um, <laughs> Sorry, I'm prone so the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition that comes out of it must be voluntary. And that's where I think that this moment is deceptive because it feels like we're all going through this together. But in fact, each of us is going through it separately so that you have something that you're dealing with. You may think, be thinking about, do I have the right job? Right. If I, you know, do I need to step away from my job to take care of my children? You know, do I want to stop drinking? You know, do I want to, you know, lean into my belief system or do I, do I want to lean belief? into my drinking? The, the, <laughs> one in four of my stories involves addiction. So this is real to me because we know, you know, domestic abuse going up, mental health problems going up, drinking problems going up, people who could leave and drink outside and then come home and people could protect themselves and they could go to bed, they're now drinking at home. So the, the drinking, the addiction thing, I think is absolutely under-discussed in this moment, but yes, absolutely. So this is the point. So here, here we go. This is the crux of what I kind of stumbled into that where we are now. So we're all going through this together, but each of us is going through separately. So the decision that you have to make is what's keeping me awake at night? Everybody listening to us, you know, stayed up late later last night worrying about something or got up early this morning with a cup of coffee and looked out the window or they are worried about someone. Like you or someone you know is going through a life transition right now. And the first step is to figure out of all the pileup that you're in, which transition do you want to go through first? Which one? Because now you go from having no agency to having agency. And then we get into what really turned out. So the first half of my book, as you know, kind of lays out all these ideas. And the second half is this is a toolkit for navigating life transitions, because I'm going to tell you exactly what's coming your way, what the phases are, what the tools are, and how you get through it. But you first have to make the decision, which transition do you want to go in? And once you make that decision, it's the equivalent of deciding to stop drinking. And then now we're going to help you get through it in an effective way to take back control in this moment when we all seem to have and feel like we have no control. And Bruce, so thank you. That's awesome. It's an important insight. It's one that does not get talked about. We, we do not have a broad conversation around who do we be? What do we do? How do we think? What are the constructs? What are the uh, learnings? Dare I even say, as much as I don't like to use it, are there best practices? Because mm -hmm. human beings figure some shit out. And if we're lucky, when they figure some shit out, they write that shit down, right? And, and that's how we can learn from the pain and suffering of others. And, and look, I'm a bigot. I'm a, I'm a Frankel bigot. But what I love about what you just said takes me to Viktor Frankl when he says, when you can't change the circumstances, you must change yourself, right? And so we have to decide who we're going to be in this moment. And I have always had a profound fascination in moments of crisis with trying to understand why some people melt like snow in July 
and why some people rise and lead in the most inspiring ways. I, I am forever fa fascinated by that. And so could you sort of unpack your thinking in, in that regard for me? So, you know, what Frankel, what Frankel does when Frankel, you know, when Frankel goes into the, um, into the concentration camp in, is he's the one who, who sort of opens the door to talking about meaning um, in our lives. And there has been this kind of low-grade tension, basically going back to Aristotle, but certainly in the years since uh, Man's Search for Meaning was published in the 50s, between you know, happiness and, and meaning, uh, kind of, because happiness is kind of a cursory thing. Like, you know, animals can be happy. Um, but meaning, and it's easy to be and happy. Happiness and meaning might not be connected. They could, they can be, of course, but they can also, you can be very, find meaning in the most horrible, painful, things on, that prior to experiencing them, you would find them unimaginable. You can find deep meaning in that. Correct. And also things that are, that are, that are on the surface joyful, like say being a parent that, you know, is not always happy because it's exhausting, but there's profound meaning in there. And one of the things that I kind of, uh, you know, I identified in my book from these coding was what I call the ABCs of meaning, the kind of basic building blocks of meaning are A is agency, which is the ability to control, do things, make things mostly our work lives. B is belonging, our relationships, connections, family, friends, neighbors, and a cause, something higher than ourselves. And one of the things that happens, we all have a kind of, we mentioned my wife, who Linda, who started Endeavor and works with entrepreneurs. Uh, Linda Rotenberg is her name. Like she's, a, she's C-A-B, she's cause first. You're like, she likes to help people. Okay. And she's agent. She tolerates the rest of us, but she's very mission driven. Like I'm a writer and a creator. So I'm agency and, but I'm very family oriented. So I'm like agency belonging and my cause, you know, other people can do that. So we have these kind of ABCs of meaning. What, one of the things that happens in a life quake, by the way, is that people reevaluate. Like maybe you've been working so hard and you're spending more time with your family, or maybe you've been a parent or a caretaker and you burned out and you want to do something for yourself, or maybe you're cause oriented and you've been giving and you're like, enough of that. You know, I want to, uh, you know, I, I, I want to write my memoir or something. So what happens, we kind of shape shift in these shapes of our lives. Um, so, but that's just kind of backstory to, to the heart of your question, which is what do you do when you're in the moment? What, what do you do when you've decided you've been in the life quake, you've decided to go to the transition. Now, what do you do? So in general, I would say people do one of two things. Either they make a 217 item to-do list and say, I'm going to do it in one weekend because I'm going to be a superhero or they feel stuck. They're in a fetal position in their bed and they're like, I can't, I can't move. And I'm just going to lie here or I'm going to cry or I'm going to drink or whatever it is because I'm going to be frozen in time. But look at enough of them as I have done in certain patterns kind of begin to appear. So the first thing I want to say is that these transitions tend to have a shape of their own. So there are these three phases, as you know, right? So there's what I call the long goodbye, where you're saying goodbye to the life that's coming behind. There's the messy middle where you're shedding habits and creating new ones. And then there's this new beginning where you unveil your new self. And um, for a hundred years in the linear life in the 20th century, we were told you had to do these in order. First, you have to say goodbye. Okay. Then you go through the middle, I call it the messy middle. Then you unveil your new self. Like the way the person who came up with this, which is like, who's a guy named Arnold Van Gennep, who was a German anthropologist in the, in the, uh, the 1909. He says, a transition is like leaving one room, going through a hallway and entering a new room. That's incredibly clean. It's very linear. It is, to use your phrase, which now become the trademark of this conversation. It's bullshit. You don't do these things in it's order. It's bullshit. 
Here's my evidence. Go into the hallway and the women. I left something behind in the old room. And wait, what's the new room like? Do I like that? Oh God, I don't want to go there yet. Imagine getting divorced. If you're getting divorced and you have children with your spouse, you could be having an affair, which means you could already be in the new beginning in your relationship. But then you have to like disentangle yourself from the other one. And the long goodbye and the messy middle all at the same time. So it turns out life is not linear and these transitions are not linear. And look, here's the other thing that people don't get having dealt with a lot of loss lately. Sorry to hear that. You don't get over it. It doesn't get better. It gets different. My grandfather died when I was 16 years old. It still fucking hurts. I'm 52 years old. It's still missing. It's not healed. It's a scar that's different, right? And so to your point, this linear business is like, oh, well, you know, the other one I love. The first year is the hardest, you know, the first birthday without them and the... Go fuck yourself. Don't t- all that, all that pop psychology bullshit about dealing with pain, dealing with grief, dealing with one of these uh, involuntary life quakes that cuts us to the core. It, it sort of irritated me before. Now it makes me want to punch people in the face. No, it's, 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 it's more than irritating. When you start talking about the five stages, first you have anger, then you have denial, you know, then you have, you know, you know, whatever melding with your life, then you have acceptance. That is worse than um, mildly annoying. It's actually dangerous because what happens is people hear this, they internalize it. And when they don't have those feelings in order, and when you're feeling angry, my grandfather shot himself a month before I graduated from high school in 1983. Okay. And, you know, you talk about a selfish act, like, you know, it was, it was, it was allegedly, you know, kind of that was supposed to be my moment. He can't, he also has Parkinson's like my dad. Now my, my grandfather takes his own life. My father tries and fails to take his own life, you know? So, and my father promised for decades that it was his father who did it. So we, we're all still capable of dealing with the, the kind of resurfacing that anger, but we're also capable of moving beyond it so how exactly yes. does that work and so so this is what happens so so we have these phases it turns out and i think the way the way i've come to think about this is like of these various phases that one of them we're good at but one of them we're not good at and so my feeling is which whichever you're good at like maybe you've had a lot of change in your so which which of those three let me just ask you rather than i, I was going to speculate I, my, my, I probably can guess but the long goodbye, the messy middle, the new beginning, which of those three phases are you best at? You know, this is going to sound terrible, but over time, I've gotten pretty good at all of them. What I'm drawn to uh, is the new beginning. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a creator. Yes, right. I'm a writer. I'm I'm a generator. Yep. Uh, and so, uh, you know, when a good buddy of mine sends me an email, uh, like I get on a fairly regular basis, it says, hey... I'm uh, doing this new startup where I met this young startup and I could really use your help because they're going to create this new category. And it's going to be awesome. And it's going to like you can get me fired up about uh, making the world a different p- place pretty quickly. So I think like a lot of entrepreneurs, like a lot of people who tilt creative, that said, I will forever be grateful to my father for teaching me about the long goodbye. Well, so that's what I wanted to talk about, because if you're good at the new beginning, chances are that your kryptonite is the long goodbye. And so because what the what the people who are good case. at the new beginning. Yeah, but you said I have you a black belt in the long goodbye. 
And that's interesting, <laughs> but that's hard earned, right? So it's you, way you, hard earned. You, yeah. Cause you had to, so, so I, I had out, to fight all the biggest, baddest MFers yes. in the world to get that black. Correct. Card. Okay. So, okay. So let me, let me just, again, take a half a step back. So we have these phases. We're good at one. Identify which one you're good at. I try to walk people through in the book. You're trying to figure this out because you got to build some confidence because it is going to be hard. There are some MFers that are going to be coming your way. It is going to be difficult. There's a reason this thing take, take three, four, five years because it is difficult. But then it turns out, you know, and you raised this earlier, and I've been thinking about how to kind of answer to the point you were making before about the skills. You know, because we have learned, one thing we've learned in the last, you know, one thing the positive psychology has done, kind of broadly speaking, for the first hundred years of psychology, we only looked at deviance and, you know, bad news and psychosis and, and sociopathy and all those kinds of things. And what, what right. positive psychology did that's very positive is say, let's look at people who are high functioning and what can we, what can we learn from them? So we've learned that habits, you can get better at habits. We know happiness. We know that our tennis game is not going to get better. Or our souffle is not going to get souffle year. You know, we even now know that our relationships take work. We know that, you know, our bodies take work. But we don't think of these transitions as taking work. And kind of a lot of what I'm saying is that these are a skill that we can get better at. But it turns out that everybody does some of these, some of the tools, the seven tools, uh, as you know, that identify that everyone does some of them well, but not all of them. And kind of everybody wants to know what everybody, you know, I used to sometimes say that the internet and sex are the same. Like everyone wants to know what everyone else is doing, but no one wants to ask. <laughs> so it's sort of like that. Like everybody, when I started talking to people, how they got through their transitions, like everybody was good at something, but everybody was bad and they kind of wanted to know what everybody else was doing. And I think a lot of the appeal of this book is like, how is everybody else getting through this? But it turns out that these tools are kind of associated with the face. So the long goodbye, I looked everybody in the eye and I said, what's the biggest emotion that you struggled with, you know, in your life transition? Okay. So this is if you've catapulted to the new beginning. Maybe not you. We won't use you as a case study. For somebody who catapults to the new beginning, it usually means they don't want to confront the emotions that they're uncomfortable confronting. And the top three answers were, number one, fear. What's the future going to bring? Like, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to live without this person? Like, how am I going to get through this? Number two, sadness. I, I like that old life. I like that person. I liked having legs before I lost them in a, in a uh, you know, motorcycle accident in, you know, in the dunes north of uh, Grand Rapids, yeah. Michigan. You know, I like having my face before it was shot off by the Taliban. So sadness. And number three, interesting enough, was shame. Like, I'm ashamed what I did when I was drinking. I'm ashamed to have a child with special needs. I'm ashamed that I have to ask for help and I can no longer pay my bills. So just identifying the motion turned out to be very powerful. But then how do people get through it? It's the second tool of market is some people write it down. Some people, you're probably like this. I'm a little bit like this. Like, stop whining, shut up and go to work. You know, like, buckle down. Like, just plow your way through it. Some people, by the way, like mementos. I was thinking about your grandfather. Do you have a memento of your grandfather mm -hmm. in, 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 your, in your home or your workspaces? Uh, multiple, but the, 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 the one that I see every day is he had this cologne bottle that was in the shape of a, a, an old car, an old convertible you know, with the uh, spare tires on it. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. You got, and, free, and, and, you got free, where do you get that, you know, you get that free at the men's store downtown? You know, yeah, that's like probably, I, who knows? <laughs> and it's, it's, it's this tacky gold color. And of course it's very old now. And the back, the back part of it is, is what you screw off to get the cologne out. Anyway, it, it, it's just, it's just, a, 
Yeah, exactly. Oh, 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 the gas oh. fumes. Yes. Oh, exactly. This is before you know climate change, right? You know, yeah, way before. Like, like the, 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 those those grease. Nineteen. I want to smell you know, more like my car. <laughs> so I have this in my uh, closet where I, you know, I go and get my clothes and stuff. And so I, I, he's there all the time, and I have others, of course. But this is a technical thing, but that's no small thing to me, right? Because that's a memento. What is a memento? A memento. A memento is a way to package emotions so that they're sitting there on the shelf. You can, there's this wonderful kind of fourth tier sociological term that I encountered once that I love that I've never seen since, which is you can socially, you can snack on it. You can look over, you can have a little moment with your grandfather and then you can go on with your day. So you're still functioning, but it acknowledges that the emotion is still there and it lets you uh, tap into that. So mementos are a way people kind of deal with their emotion but the biggest is that they use ritual and this was shocking to me because this mm. this kind of taps into the part of me that likes religion but 80 percent of people said they used mementos in some i mean excuse me they used rituals in some ways they held parties they sang songs they built altars they hung flags in the back i talked to a guy fred schlomer who was in a loveless marriage for decades got out came out as gay uh in his 60s he went to a sweat lodge to expunge it i talked to a woman lisa ray rosenberg had an awful year she was a bone marrow donor to her brother she had a falling out with her mother she went on 52 first dates she actually made a spreadsheet of everything she wore in every day because she only went on seven second dates and she didn't want to wear the same thing on the second date that she'd worn <laughs> on the first date. And she's like, this isn't working. What was her biggest fear? Um, heights. She jumped out of an airplane. It was this. So people use these rituals as a way, as kind of public gestures to say to themselves and to the people around them, I'm going through a life transition. I'm going to say goodbye. And I think that the saying goodbye thing to kind of bring this up to the moment I think that has been the great kryptonite of 2020. Because when the pandemic first hit, we felt like we're going to stay inside, we're going to mitigate, they're going to solve the problem, and we're going to be back to, remember, we're going to be back by Easter. We're going to be back by the summer. We're going to be back by the fall. And I think that we went through a collective crisis of not saying goodbye. And one of the reasons that I think that we're finding it hard to move on is that we haven't ritualized that the past is not coming past. We haven't confronted the emotion and we haven't done anything um, as a country. Perhaps the election will be this way. We're going to find out um, as a way to say we are turning the page because these rituals are there's a reason religion did them for 3000 years is because they are very powerful and, and, and comforting. So I, I find that fascinating. Rituals and mementos help us in these transitions. Yes. And we don't get trained in saying goodbye. And you see it when people are dying. Mm -hmm. Because in our culture, we turn away. In our culture, very often people die alone in a hospital. The medical profession allows us to to hide it over here. And my dad taught me to complete with my grandfather, who was actually my mother's father. And ever since then, Bruce, I have steered straight into end of life with people that I love. Straight into it. Because I think if you're going to sit there in Hawaii and drink Mai Tais, then you're going to be there at the end. It's part of life. And, 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 and to me, 
steering away from somebody you love in the final moments or days of their lives makes no sense. But we don't get taught that. And I'm, I'm grateful my father taught me that. And I've done it ever since. And I take it very seriously. Norman McLean wrote a very famous book. I think it's Young Men in Fire about the about a very famous kind of Western fire uh, in in the hills um, of the American West. And lots of firefighters died. And the firefighters, it turned out that the best way to fight this fire was not to run away from the fire. The people who fled the fire died. It was actually the people that moved toward the fire, set a patch of land aflame so that there was no fuel for the fire. And they sat there and the fire went over them. This is kind of a hallmark. You mentioned at the outset my kind of collective life's work. And I've actually never written this, but this has been like run into the fire. When it's hottest, go for the pain. So am I stoked that we're here? I didn't know that we'd get here. So uh, some stream of consciousness and then I think questions. A buddy of mine, a guy that I've become friends with through podcasting, his name is Chris Fussell and he's the president of the McChrystal Group. And he, he's been working with four-star General Stanley McChrystal for many, many years. He was his chief of staff uh, in the Middle East. And he's a former Navy SEAL. And one of the things he said to me about SEALs is uh, one of the things that makes SEALs different is they run to the sound of the guns. So that's just something I want to just have sit with you for a sec. Secondarily, in these moments of crisis, there's a thing to me about choice, about choosing to be the man or the woman who stands up and does what's required and more in a moment of crisis. And I can tell you the exact uh, moment in time and where I was when I decided that that's I was 17 years old. That was the man I wanted to be. Could I train myself to be somebody that mattered when the shit mattered? Because those were the people that I respected and admired. And the problem with making that decision for me is, at least in my mind at the time, and it's been true ever since, Bruce, there's no wimping out on the decision. Once you know, earlier you talked about identity. Once you decide to construct as part of your identity that who you are is someone who could be counted on and then some when the shit hits the fucking fan, you, 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 you move to that. You run to the sound of the guns. This is my experience of my own life. And so with all that said, in these moments, the, these life quake moments, when we get the horrible phone call that you never wanted to get, or you turn on your TV and you see a cop's knee on a man's neck as he begs for his life, or as we have in our community of late, mourn the vicious killing of one of our sergeants, and now deal with the horrible crisis of a fire that destroyed much of our community. And on and on and on. How much do you think choice plays a role where we choose to have agency to, to make the transition? The quakes fucking happen, but we make a decision. I, I'm curious what you think about everything I just said. 
The first thing I want to say is that these moments are coming. The idea that you can live that fantasy linear life that I thought I was going to be living, that all of us want to live, that's a fantasy. I've spent a lot of time in this project thinking about stories and the kinds of stories that we tell about ourselves. Like we have this story going on in our head, like who we are, where we came from, where we're going. If you got one of those calls today and you had to run to the hospital to see a loved one, you would be telling a story in your head about this person and what they mean to you. That story in your head, that story is the story of who you are. And if there's one thing we've learned in the last generations, that story is not just part of you. That story is you in a fundamental way. Life is the story that you tell yourself. And whether you are victim or hero or champion or friend or lover, how you tell that story matters. And so, but here's the thing. What we think about stories gets locked in when we're very young. And we're incredibly influenced by something that we don't think about the rest of our lives, which is our, which is fairy tales. And we all want to be the hero. We think of the hero of the fairy tale and we think of the happy ending. But what is it that makes it a fairy tale? What makes it a fairy tale is when the wolf shows up. It's a wolf or it's a dragon or it's an ogre or it's a downsizing or a death or a tornado or a pandemic. And we want to banish the wolf, but you can't banish the wolf. And you don't want to banish the wolf because if you banish the wolf, you banish the hero. And we all want to be the hero of our own story. So what happens when you are face to face with a wolf? This is what happened to me all those years ago when I had all those things. It's what happened to my dad. It's like we lost control of our story. <laughs> you know, I think of storytelling as it's good. I can tell this in the full off color way, given the conversation we've been having. That's real. <laughs> yes, and I appreciate that, by the way. It's real. Um, is I think of writing as like you're halfway through the woods. You know, there, a writer has a quiver on the back. And, okay. And in the quiver is a bunch of arrows. Okay. So that you're walking through the woods of your story that you're telling. And then suddenly you're halfway through a paragraph and you get fucked. You don't know how to get out of the paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> and your job as a writer is to put as many quiver, you know, many arrows into that quiver <laughs> as possible so that you can pull out and you can fight your way through the woods. Okay. What this project has been for me, what the life story project has been for me is essentially a giant arrow factory. It gave me more tools to fight wolves than I ever thought imaginable. It made me grateful to be honest. And kind of one thing I'm hearing from readers of this book is, it made me realize that my problem is is kind of not all that big, you know. Like I got, I know a lot of people now who I have people in this book that were in cults, you know, that were that were foundlings who became you know country music stars who lost everything. I mean, I got people who were neo Nazis who bodies came out of it and bodies were covered in tattoos. And how are you going to transform from that? Like the stories in this book are amazing. Um, but it also makes you feel kind of grateful for all the problems you haven't at least yet had in your life. But it's kind of a tool making factory. But what I want to say, I also want to kind of, well, I want to respect and, and, and salute the run toward the sound mantra of our greatest kind of military champions. I also want to want to remember that those military champions have another idea, which is stick together. 
you know, band of siblings. Maybe you can't say band of brothers anymore, right? And they all, and they brothers also and sisters, yeah. you know, band of brothers and sisters, right? And they also they're doing it for something bigger than themselves. Mission driven. And if that sounds familiar, it's back to the ABCs of meaning. Because what are the ABCs of meaning? It's agency. You want something that you can do, you can control, you can affect, but you can't do it alone. You might think that you can do it alone, but you can't. Everybody has a mentor or a friend or a loved one who helps them along the way. Share it with someone. So what do you need when that wolf shows up? You need agency, something you can do. You need a sense of belonging, that you're doing it with somebody else. And you need a cause, something higher than yourself. I call this your me story, your we story, and your the story. You need all of these stories that you're telling. So the moment that we're in now, we are facing a collective wolf. But the way each of us is going to get around it is going to be different. So find something you can do. One of the things I try to do in this book, I'm going to give you something to do, practical. Tonight, tomorrow, you can have a memento, right? You can shed a habit. You can create a new habit. Like you can call a friend. I'm going to give you something you can do tonight, tomorrow, next week, the week after. I'm going to introduce you to other people. So you're doing it on a team. You're feeling like you're part of it. And I'm going to say it's a higher calling because we're all doing this together. The only way we're going to get through this is if each of us does our part. And if you are lucky enough that you're not going through it now, like it turns out a big market for this book is people going through life transitions, as we all are. But a bigger market- Good title then. <laughs> yeah. A bigger market is people who were living with someone who's going through a life transition and they want something mm -hmm. to tell them. Mm -hmm. But in fact, I'll end there. I'll go right there. Because why did I call this book Life is in the Transition? It's a William James line from 100 years ago. Because, and we never got to this, so I'll say it here at the end. We go through three to five of these life quakes in the course of our lives. The average length of them, five years. Mm. But three to five in our lifetime, four, five, six years, that's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives we are spending in transition. You or someone you live with is going through one right now. And if we look at this as periods that we have to grit and grind and suffer our way through, we are wasting half of our life. If we look at them as periods that are going to be difficult and painful, but as also opportunities for growth and renewal, which is the, that's the story of your life is turning these life quakes into life. Life is in the transitions. You go through this journey. You're going to meet people who've been through it, and it's going to give you something to do so it'll be a little bit easier and a lot more effective. I'm almost prepared to guarantee it. We can get through this wolf together. Thank you so much for coming, and God bless you. It's nice to make a new friend. Thank you for this wonderful conversation. See you down the road. I sure hope so. Come back any time. You got it. There he is, the legendary Bruce Feiler, and his book is called Life is in the Transitions. And speaking of transitions, today, more than ever, businesses need every advantage they can get to succeed. And that's where my friends at NetSuite from Oracle come in. You see, NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And really, they provide... Uh, the, the, uh, the software for every part of your business, from finance to HR to inventory to omni-channel omni commerce, uh, etc. With NetSuite, you can manage every penny with precision. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, NetSuite gives you the visibility and control that you need to succeed today. And NetSuite's gone out and done uh, some pretty cool work, and they put together a guide called The Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now. And you can pick up your copy at netsuite.com slash different. 
for your free guide and your free product tour of NetSuite, netsuite.com slash different. And my friends at Splunk are um, having the premier conference in the data, uh, the data age. It's called .com. And it's for thousands of IT and security and business professionals who care about bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. And it's open for registration uh, right now. So check out comp, C-O-N-F dot Splunk dot com and get empowered to bring data to everything. That's October 20 through 21 in America and 21, 22 for Europe and Asia. Splunk, uh, comp dot Splunk dot com. <laughs> All right. We would like to thank Bruce. Uh, what an amazing conversation, an incredible guy. I hope he comes back. His new book is out and it's um, it's on fire. Check it out. It's called Life is in the Transitions. And you can find Bruce on the internet at brucefiler.com. OneLifeFullyLived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. My friends at Bottleneck want to help scale you with a dedicated distant assistant. Check out bottleneck.online. And my friends at Otranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. They're going to help you conquer your category. Check out A-T-R-E.N-E-T today. And if you can, now's the time to dig into your wallet and write some checks, whether it's for your food bank uh, or, or, or for uh, our healthcare heroes or anywhere in your community that's hurting right now. If you're in a position to help, I would urge you to do that. We need to remind you that today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. We are produced and edited by living podcast legend Jason DeFilippo. Uh, listen to his podcast as I do. It's one of my top favorites. It's called Grumpy Old Geeks. Uh, Sarah Knox and Jamie J do technical execution and build Lockhead.com. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Remember to spread podcasts, not viruses. Also, the left lane is the fast lane. Please treat it as such. Listen to Blue Rodeo. Stop burning California. Remember to vote early and often. Uh, thanks, Candy Dandy. Love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carson. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you so much. I deeply appreciate you being uh, with us. Uh, stay legendary, stay safe, and until we're together again, follow your difference.